This is episode number 22 of Spokes with Moondance director Cooper Flanagan. You're listening to the Red Bicycle Media Spokes podcast, a show about the experiences of a film production house and the people they work with in the film industry with your host, James Pizarro. Hey everyone, welcome back to Spokes. It is producer Christian and we are continuing Director's Month here. And before we begin, I do want to talk a little bit about what's been going on in our shop. I, if you follow us on social media, uh, there's been some activity besides posting all these podcasts, of course. Uh, but I wanted to give you a more detailed uh, outlook of what we've been up to. For starters, you may have noticed some changes if you've been to our site lately. We made some changes to the layout, uh, adding the podcast, of course, as an option. Uh, we added some new projects that we've worked on in the past as part of our little collage. Uh, some of the people we've worked with. A little bit of information even about the session and um, little updates about the collective film project, which is on hiatus right now. Uh, and there may be something new. If you click play on our landing page, you may notice something different than what you've been seeing if you've been on our site before. So definitely check that out. Just a little hint. <laughs> uh, we've been thankful to have been busy during a strange time. We know with COVID and everything else going on, it may not be the case with everyone, but we hope through this podcast that we can inspire all of you to create, improve your craft, whatever it takes to bring you to the next level. There's a lot to learn here, and this episode is no different. We continue Director's Month with a very interesting genre. If you have ever done a 48-hour film project, it's called A Team's Worst Nightmare, and it is uh, musicals. Although it has been done, you can get at least top three. I've seen a musical get a top three, I believe, two years ago at the Columbus 48. So we're going to explain a little bit more about uh, that genre today and directing it, of course. Uh, so much that goes into them, the musical numbers, the choreography, sound, very important role, of course. It takes a lot to direct one of these films, but add in the writing and composing the music. Uh, it's really that's much difficult. And there's also the concern of, uh, of course, distribution. They had a release date of March 13th, and of course, the national state of emergency was announced that day concerning the coronavirus. But luckily, you can watch this film right after this show, of course, on Amazon Prime Video. Without further ado, here is the director of Moondance, Mr. Cooper Flanagan. So, uh, first of all, welcome to the show, and uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad to have you on board. And tell me about your background. My background, let's see, uh, been involved in movies my whole life pretty much. My brother was an actor when I was a kid. Uh, he's five years older than me and uh, grew up outside of Chicago and he did tons of stuff. He'd do commercials and you know, radio ads and short films. He was, he was briefly cast in uh, The Little Rascals um, before they like did some shake-up on that. But yeah, so I was always around movies for uh for a long time uh that didn't last forever i just wasn't you know i didn't do i did a little bit of that a little bit of you know acting as a kid but it wasn't something that i was like passionate about or wanted to do um and then when college rolled around it was like well hey i don't really know what i want to do in college but everyone goes to college so i got to figure out something and uh decided to go to film school uh as i think most people's experiences i learned very little in film school um but uh, I moved out to L.A. right afterwards and uh, got really fortunate to work on some really great sets where I learned a lot about how, you know, movies are made, more the logistics side of stuff, right? Because, you know, I had this whole 
lifetime of experience of watching movies and studying movies and you know all of that and but i didn't have any idea how you actually made a movie um and you know getting on a few sets like that i worked as the the thing that really helped us more than anything is i worked as an accountant on a youtube red show for a season and getting to work with like all the producers and and everybody in an office together for four months was the best you know crash course and how movies are actually put together from a you know brick by brick perspective as opposed to like big overarching ideas because you know i'd go to i went to film school and like we had one class in producing and it was how to put together a budget but there was no like practicality to it. it wasn't like hey we're gonna make this movie you have this much money how are you gonna allocate it it was like make up a fake movie that's you know whatever budget you want and then allocate it's like well that's not i'm not learning anything i can just be like uh how about this much to this and this much to that like you know you don't learn the ins and outs of like how to hire a crew and like you know, making call sheets and bringing people in and making sure everybody that you need to be there is there and learning how to problem solve and all that stuff. So, um, you know, in my experience, the best way to learn is to do it. And I got really fortunate to work on, you know, a couple different movies and, um, you know, lots of, lots of smaller stuff out in LA, which gave me a huge, uh, leg up. I felt like when I finally came back to the Midwest and started working on my own projects. I don't think people realize how much uh, a day-to-day troubleshooting, um, world it is in 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 the on the production side and, and it could be as simple as like well that that location fell through or stuntman broke oh, yeah. his arm or we need we now need x for set um was there a, a degree of that that you've learned to uh, adjust or or uh, acclimate on the spot absolutely i mean i so i've been really fortunate to always have kind of a chance to practice troubleshooting and problem solving my life I've always uh I've never really had a traditional like day job I've always run my own little businesses doing this or that when I was a kid I mowed lawns and you know then I uh you know I did uh, like smaller filmmaking stuff for a while and just random stuff and doing all that gave me a really good base on like how to solve a problem quickly but absolutely once I got onto sets of movies um especially the ones where I was the one in charge you start realizing that, you know, so much can be planned ahead and you should absolutely put all this work into figuring out how you're going to do everything and you should have an answer to every question. But then you learn day one that there's also a hundred questions that you never really realized that you were going to need to know the answer to. Or like you said, you know, I've had locations fall through, you know, six hours for I had I've had to recast, you know, main characters in a movie less than 12 hours before they had to be on set you know, for day one and trying to figure out like, can we push it back another day? How can we move the schedule? And, you know, it's, it's a lot different when you're getting onto a bigger project where it's like 30 days of shooting and you're having to figure out, you know, how can we adjust the schedule? Um, you know, which is something that like film school never prepared me for. Our biggest shoots were like an afternoon, you know, and, and the, the extent of a schedule or a shot list was we need to do this scene not, you know, not break down every single shot and put it in the right order and figure out how we're going to do everything. And this guy's coming in at this time and this is coming at this time and lunch is now and we have to do this. And, you know, we can only be in this location from here to here. And so, yeah, it's like you said, it's it's solving problems every day. I always I always uh, use the phrase. Uh, what is it? Um, elegant solutions for complicated problems. Right. Because like, you yeah. run into all these problems and there's there's a million solutions. And, you know, if you have all the money in the world, there's easy solutions but you have constraints you know those constraints are time or money or this person is not available and you have to figure out a solution that's going to work in the moment 
I think that keeps you honest, though. Uh, it, I, I think they have, it, it's almost like bringing too many lenses uh, to a, sh a shoot or too many options that sometimes when you just simplify things or with a very constrained, bu uh, constrained budget, you, your problems kind of solve themselves in a way. You have to learn to work within those parameters. And sometimes you- 100%. It's funny, they always say that about a movie. Uh, the saying I heard was great is that it's the uh, best 30 days that you never want to do again, right? Because it's, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's fun, but I don't know if uh, people want to go through it. And it's, it, but you know, you keep on doing it again, which is the best part of it. Absolutely, yeah. So tell me, how did you, how did you find your, your pathway into, into directing and, and knowing that, you know, maybe musicals are, are the area I want to spend time in. I'm sure you do a lot of different things, but what made you kind of feel that this is your niche? Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't have any real aspirations to be a director when I went to film school. I didn't really know what anyone specifically did. You know, I, I kind of figured that there was like a guy who was in charge of the camera and like, that was about it. You know, I knew that it was like kind of a director, but I couldn't necessarily tell you what they did. I didn't know how they were different than the producer or anybody else. Right. Um, and then I took a directing class in college and kind of by default started directing my own projects. Cause it was kind of a thing of if you were bold enough when pitches came up for a project to be like, I've got one and I wrote it and I'm going to make it. You were more likely to get to do it than the other guy who was like, um, you know, I kind of want to do something. Right. And so I kind of just fell into it and I realized like, I always, I always fashioned myself as a writer before anything else when I, when I first started getting into this. And I just realized very quickly that if I didn't direct my own stuff, that I wouldn't have control over my scripts and I'd have to sell them to other people and watch them make them and be sad. Uh, and so I kind of just fell into it from necessity, but then very quickly realized that I loved doing it, right? Um, as far as musicals, I mean, I've always loved musicals, right? I, I grew up doing a lot of theater as a kid. Um, I grew up going to the theater a lot as a kid, absolutely loved it, thought it was the best thing ever. Uh, actually originally went to school to be an actor. I went to, to do like musical theater, uh, and very quickly realized I love it, but I don't want to spend four years in college learning about this. Uh, it's more kind of a side thing. Right. Um, and so I went, you know, back into making movies. Right. And when I started writing Moondance, the movie I just made last year, it's a musical, uh, it wasn't originally a musical. It was just, it was a fun movie. And the, the experience of writing, it was kind of a, an exercise. And every time I'd come to a problem in the script, it was, what's the most outrageous way I can solve this problem? Okay. Now what's the most outrageous way I can solve the next problem and the next problem? Well, and at one point, the, the answer to what's the most outrageous way I can solve this problem was this giant like dream sequence musical number that was the most outrageous thing I could think of. And it was hilarious. And I was like, well, that's fun. I've never really written music before, but you know, I'm sure I could write a musical number. And within a couple months, the whole movie had turned into a musical. And I was like, interesting. I guess I have to write a musical now. Never done this before. And the beautiful thing was no one had yet told me, oh, you can't write a musical. You don't know what you're doing. You've never done this before. So I went into it so blind and like unaware of how difficult it would be that I just kind of ran with it before anyone could tell me this is a terrible idea. Right. Um, and it just evolved very quickly and it became something that I realized was just tremendously fun. And while I'm not working on any like musicals right now, like I'm writing a bunch of scripts of it. I don't have anything that's like specifically a musical. I almost everything I write has some element of like music to it. Cause it's something that I'm really passionate about. Uh, I definitely want to go back to it because it's just, so much fun because it's the perfect, in my opinion, it's the perfect blending of movies and theater because 
movies a lot of times don't feel anything like theater, right? There's so much editing. There's so much, uh, you know, camera angles that would be completely impossible in theater that you can't replicate because, you know, theater is basically one wide angle lens. Even if you're really close to the stage and off to the side, you're still kind of like, you know, pretty much one perspective, right? But then you get into making a musical and you have all these opportunities to make it feel like it's on the stage, like it's live, even though it's not. Um, and it's it was really fun to be able to capture that feeling of, it being live and being like, we have one chance to get this, even though obviously we don't, we can do it a hundred times if we need to, but on camera, it feels like this was a real thing that happened in the moment. And and I just love that, that marriage between the two. So many ideas kind of die uh, on the either, uh, not even on the launch pad, but, but in the process of actually getting it to be a film and, you know, uh, with, with, uh, what we spoke about earlier, budget constraints and and just uh, uh, and whatnot, it, it gets tough to get these things produced. How did you push through to say, you know what? Uh, I, first of all, I'm curious. I, I I do this a lot. I ask people ten questions and I want uh, you to memorize all the uh, the questions. But how <laughs> how did uh, you know? And how many rewrites did you have before you said, you know what? This is a solid script. Um, let's let's see what we can do to push it. What was that process like? Yeah. I wrote I wrote the first draft of this thing back in 2014, right? So it was four years between when I first wrote it and when I produced it. And it sat around for a long time. Like, I wrote it in 2014. It wasn't a musical. It was very different than it is today. I thought, well, that's fun. But at the time, I wasn't really trying to make a movie. I was still in film school at the time. I wrote it over a summer. Um didn't really know how to make a movie, right? So I put it away, ended up writing a different movie that I made. It was my first feature. It was a really small drama that was much, much easier than a musical, you know, um, made it with like 10 people. And uh, then I came back to it. And I was like, you know, I really like this. I, I want to I wanna try and get it to a point where I'm happy with it and would actually want to make it. And fortunately, I, I didn't believe that I was going to make it enough to ever restrain myself in the writing of oh man i'd love to do this but i know i'm never going to be able to afford to do this scene so what's the solution i just wrote it as if it was a script i didn't have any practical concerns when i wrote it um and that i think really helped me because i got to a point where i had a script i liked it and then i had to figure out creative ways to make all that work right uh you know how am i going to pull off this scene how am i going to pull off this scene and uh it just kind of kept going and honestly it would be funny when you ask, like, when did I know it was done? I'd think it was done. I'd read the draft and be like, I'm, I'm really happy with this. This is great. And I'd, you know, put it aside for a couple of weeks and I'd come back to it like, this is the worst thing I've ever written. How could I think this was good? And I'd go back and, you know, change a bunch of things. And honestly, the last draft of it didn't, you know, I didn't materialize a finished script that I was like, I'm going to make this until the spring of the year that I made it. And we shot it in September of that year. So you can imagine we were much more rushed than we should have been in pre-production especially on a musical um which is you know one of countless things that i look back on and go man i wish i had done that differently but you know your hindsight is 2020 i always joke that i'm gonna write it's it's like half joke half if i ever have time that i'm gonna write a book called how not to make a feature film on like all the things that went wrong that could have derailed the project and destroyed it but you know by happenstance still worked out or it a lot of times made the situation even better because of, you know, some constraint we had, you know, great ideas are usually born out of, out of, uh, you know, necessity because you can't do everything you want to. 
Well, how did you go about building your, your team and, and finding uh, and your relationship with Chase and uh, how that came about and, you know, what, what were the steps you took to, because I think a lot of people, uh, people will be interested in, in saying that, you know, I, I, we work with a lot of people who, who are hired on the films, but when you have to basically create everything uh, for yourself, how did that process go? It was interesting. I had no idea what I was doing. Most of the people I went to film school with were either out in L.A. or didn't really continue in the film uh, industry after college. So I, I had almost zero connections of people that I would want to you know hire and work with. And on top of that, like I didn't even necessarily in, in every sense know everything that I needed. Right. Like I knew that, like, oh, I need this person. But I had no idea, like how big a camera department actually was. Right. You know. Um, so I started, I started reaching out on Facebook groups that I was a part of, um, which was really unnerving. So I was like, man, I've never worked with these people. How weird, like, you know, working with people I've never worked with before and I'm hiring them, going to pay them real money to work on my movie. Um, and very quickly the, uh, I found a, an amazing DP, Greg Krause. He's done like everything in Ohio ever. Um, he works all the time. He's made tons of movies. He's incredibly talented. And he terrified me. I met him on, you know, we, we talked over the phone and I'm like, this guy's way too good. He'll never want to work on my tiny little movie. Like, you know, very, very intimidated by how much he knew, but then very quickly went, you know what? That's probably great because if he intimidates me, he obviously knows way more than I do and he'll do a great job. Um, but all I had was Greg and I'm like, I, you know, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I don't know any of these people, you know, Greg knew some people and could recommend a little bit, but then, um, I met Chase through a post I made on a forum asking, I was looking for a production designer and Chase contacts me. It's like two, three in the morning and he messages me on Facebook and he's like, Hey, uh, I saw you were looking for, you know, a production designer. He goes, I'm actually, I had a project that I was working on that kind of fell through and I've got some free time and I'd love to work on your project. You don't know too much about it, but you know, if you're looking for like another producer, just let me know. Um, and I was a little hesitant cause I'm like, you know, when does that happen? When does, you know, a ready-made talented producer just pop up out of the, the blue and be like, hey, I want to work on your movie, right? Um, but we got on the phone about a week later, and he was awesome. We talked for like three hours. He really got the movie. He, you know, he seemed like he really knew what he was doing. Um, and very quickly after that, we were working on it together. And without him, I never would have been able to put it all together because he knew everyone, you know? Like, I, I was good as far as, like, how to make a movie because I wrote this movie set kind of where I lived. I knew all the locations. I didn't write a movie and then go, Oh man, how am I going to get a diner? I was like, Oh, I knew which diner I wanted. I knew which house I wanted. I knew which, you know, place I wanted. Right. But I had no idea who I was going to hire to make this thing. I didn't even know most of the cast. You know, there were a few people I was like, I'm going to have you, but like for the most part, I had no idea. And he comes along and is like, here's 50 resumes pick, you know? Um, and within, I mean, that was in June. No, that was in May. In May, and by June we had most of our cast. Um, so you know, he came in, and we just we. It was like we went from a crawl to sprinting to the finish line at that point. So when you started filming, did you where did where did you get funding for the movie, or was it you know self funded, or um, did funding come along once people saw proof of concept? Got it. So we, it was almost completely self-funded, uh, which was interesting. It was one of those things where I was like, well, uh, I, I want to make a movie at some point and I either, you know, 
put all the chips in on this or all the chips are going in on something and this looks really good and I'm not, you know, at that point I didn't have the understanding or the confidence to like approach investors. It never felt like I was asking someone to invest in a project. It felt like I was begging people for money that they were never going to see again. Right. So, um, you know, it was basically almost, almost a hundred percent of it was just, you know, dipping into your life savings and put, uh, putting it on credit cards and figuring out how to pay it off later and trying to, you know, make it as cheaply as you could, um, without sacrificing quality. You're the um, first guy that's ever done that, by the way. Of course. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Y- you know, though, the frustrating thing is, despite being by no means the first person to ever do that, everyone still thinks you're crazy. Even though you can point to a thousand people that did it, uh, they're all like, you're, you're, you're a crazy person. Don't do this. You know, I, there were tons of people who were like, this is the worst idea ever. Invest Please it. Don't. Yeah, invest it in the stock market because what can yeah. go wrong there for sure? Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Just save. Just save. You'll be able to pay for it down the road. I'm like... Do you realize how much, how many years I would have to save my paychecks to pay for this? But it all turned out. I mean, there was there was a little bit of talk about doing something like a proof of concept and trying to get funding off of that. But um, in from what I've experienced from other people who've tried to do that, the average person is not really good at looking at a proof of concept and being like, I can see how that's going to be a full movie. It's going to be awesome and make us a lot of money. Um, they either are really knowledgeable in investing and just want the hard numbers, which when you're making a movie with no famous people is hard to give, or they're just a nice person who's like, sure, I'll give you money no matter what. So that proof of concept kind of falls in the middle ground of not really helping either group much. So we ended up opting away from that in the end. It's just like dipping your uh, foot in the pool and not just jumping in because you're, you're, that I, I think a lot of people think, well, you know, if, if I show like five minutes of a great film, I know they're, they're gonna invest a million dollars and we'll be all set. I, I, I think that's the rarity, and I used to think like that, and I, I I agree with you. I think it has to, you have to find a way to fund it and just get uh, get the movie done. How many yeah, how many principal days of photography, and uh, how how long was your pre production? Um, so pre production was way shorter than it should have been because we you know we started in May and we shot we started shooting in September, um, but uh, on September fifth, yes, yeah, September fifth, twenty eighteen, and. Uh, we shot for 29 days of principal and then we did one day of pickups uh, plus one. Day, we like way down the road, like months later when we were recording some of the soundtrack, it like hit me like two days before we were recording how to film this like really simple intro that I was really excited about. So Greg and, uh, and our first AC came up for like four hours and we shot it out real quick and it was great. But yeah, 29 days of, of uh, principal. And, and then the one pickup day uh, to pick up some stuff. We got rained out, you know, every now and then, or we'd miss a shot here or there. And so we just picked it all up. And everything went perfectly smooth, right? No, no <laughs> hitches or anything. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. It, it's the least smooth I've ever seen something go. Like, I've worked on, I've worked on like, really tiny, like, you know, $100,000 indie movies. And I've worked on, like, Detroit, the movie Detroit. And I've never seen something go as like not as smoothly as this did just thing after thing. I mean, you can plan all day long. And then, like I said, you know, then you replace an actor 12 hours before they're on set that your, you know, a location backs out on you. We had one location lined up that was pretty hard to replicate. And, uh, the day before we were supposed to shoot there, we contacted them just to, you know, just to confirm everything. And the person who had agreed to let us film there was on vacation. And the person who replaced them was like, 
we don't allow film productions here. What I don't know why they ever would have approved it, but there's no way we can let you come. And we were supposed to be there the, you know, the next day. And Chase happened to, after work every day, he would go to this local bar and hang out and he would play, uh, he would play Fortnite with the owner's son and got to be like friends with him. And so the owner loved him and was like, you want to come film? You can just have our place. And so we, we ended up using their bar, uh, which had a very similar look to the one we were look, we were supposed to film at and, you know, knock that out last minute. But yeah, it was just, just issue after issue after issue that honestly was fun though. I mean, like if everything had gone right, it wouldn't have been very enjoyable and we wouldn't have had some of the happy accidents that made for some really good stuff in the end. I think that's what makes the whole process fun. So you went into post-production, and uh, what you do? Knock it out in the week, and it was ready to go. So, <laughs> so tell me about your post-production process. Post-production was crazy. We thought we could knock it out really fast. It's actually really funny. Chase and I are both people who have endless ambition and not enough uh, common sense. And in some ways, that's really good for us to work together. And in other ways, we often end up getting ourselves into things that we can't do because neither of us has the common sense to say don't do that. And we actually wanted to try and have a rough cut done. Uh, I think the amount, I think we were going to have like five weeks to do a rough cut because we wanted to turn it into, I, I can't even remember the festival at this point, but there was some festival that was like, there's no way we ever would have gotten into it. But in our like ambitious, you know, uh, first time, you know, thing, we we're like, oh yeah, of course. Um, and our original plan, we were going to have, we had this editor lined up and we were going to run them dailies. Like every couple days, we we're going to have one of our PAs drive to Cincinnati every few days and drop off a hard drive. And then that fell through cause they weren't available. Um, and then we had an editor lined up. Uh, they, they had the footage for a little while and then they didn't pan out. So now it's, we've been sitting on the movie for like three weeks, still no editor. Uh, I ended up hiring this guy out of New York who was amazing. He was really, really talented, uh, liked him a lot, sent him the hard drive, you know, mail, so terrifying, mail him this giant Thunder Bay with, you know, obviously we have backups, but like the entire film on this, you know, gigantic hard drive. We're like, oh, hope it makes it there. Hope no one drops the box. Uh, and he starts working and it's really cool. Like he's sending me, you know, it's the first time I've really done this where like someone's sending me a movie and I look at it and I give notes and, you know, Chase sees it and uh, it was fun. And then it got to, we were, we we're coming up on our deadline to lock picture so that we could get everything else done in post. And all of a sudden I start getting this feeling of like, Oh no, Oh no, this could be so much better than it is. I don't like it. Uh, and I was about to contact Chase and be like, Chase, what do you think? Do you think it's good? Do you think it needs work? And he gets a hold of me and goes, Matt, I don't think the movie's any good. What do you think? And I was like, I think the same thing. And so I ended up messing with, I was like, I'm just going to edit the musical numbers. Maybe that'll clean it up. Cause like, I have a really good sense of, of music, right? I'm a musician. I wrote all the music. Um, and my editor was great, but he knows very little about music. So like, it just didn't, it didn't have the flow that I was looking for. So I cut all of the, all the musical numbers and, uh, and I liked him a lot better. Chase liked him a lot better. The editor agreed. He's like, yeah, this works better. And uh, he goes to import it into Premiere, and he had been using one version earlier than me, and it crashed his whole system, and the project file wouldn't open anymore, and he's like, I can rebuild it, but it's going to take me like four or five days. I'm like, great, no problem. And I go, you know what? I, I want to see how far I can just like edit the movie in the next like five days while he's working on this thing. So I just start working, and I mean, literally, like, I wasn't... 
I was not sleeping. I would work until I couldn't keep my eyes open, take a nap, wake up an hour later, go back, keep working. And I was like, I'm going to see how much of this I can possibly knock out. And by the time he got the thing rebuilt, I had like 80% of the movie edited. And I was like, I think I'm just going to edit this thing. And he and I talked and it was, it was a very, very disappointing moment, you know, for, for my editor realizing like, all this work. And in the end, I wasn't going to end up using his cut of it, but, um, but it was, it was, you know, it was, uh, we agreed on it that like, this was the direction that I wanted to go with it and that it worked a lot better. Um, not that his movie was bad. It just wasn't the movie we were looking for. Um, so we had a little bit of work still to do. We've wrapped up editing. It went off to all of the, you know, all the post people, the music was a nightmare because, we went about it really backwards um, because of the short pre-production. The music hadn't been finished by the time we went into production um, or hadn't been recorded. It was, it was all written. My composer, cause I wrote like, I wrote the, the melodies and everything and the lyrics and then he would orchestrate it. Um, he was out of Paris. He's awesome. And we didn't have time to get the whole thing recorded before production. So we were recording musical numbers to uh, MIDI tracks with just vocals so that people could lip sync which is great except when you write jazz music the midi tracks are going to be exactly one two three four one two three four and then you record the you know the real music and it's a lot more free-flowing and so there was a lot of work to make everything line up exactly how you wanted it to and to actually work well and to fit perfectly um so yeah that was that was i mean it was a long process but as far as movies go as far as musicals go not as long as it could have been we finished in may in order to make some festival deadlines. Um, and then that was May. We had like a two hour and 20 minute cut of the movie. Um, that was good, but it was long and it was too long. And, uh, after a summer of realizing that festivals didn't like our two, our two, almost two and a half hour monstrosity, I sat back down and watched it with some, you know, fresh eyes and went, Oh, that could go, that could go, that could go, that could be shorter, that could be better. And we got it down to a little over an hour and a half. And it's a much, it's a much better movie for it. Um, and that's the final product that now was in theaters, uh, very briefly, <laughs> uh, and, uh, now on Amazon. So yeah, it was an interesting process. Did you end up uh, hiring a colorist to do it or did you do a lot? Oh of yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did some of the coloring myself. I hired a guy out of uh, my, actually my old college who he, um, he was just about to graduate and he worked on the project as his, uh, senior project. Um, so it was really cool to be able to, you know, give somebody an opportunity like that. Um, cause you know, right out of college working on a features huge. Uh, and then I did some of the work cause he was, he would do some of the scenes and then I would kind of tweak them from there. Um, so we kind of worked in collaboration um, on that. For the musical numbers then, how did you, uh, you know, that's got to be a certain level of musicianship and, and sound amazing. Uh, because, uh -huh. As you know, sound design and now you're adding music and dialogue and everything. How did you handle that? Because that that's as important as the, the pictures, you know. If not Absolutely. More Absolutely. As far as like sound design, stuff like that, I know so little about it. Like the music side, I was, I, you know, felt pretty confident, in, but I, I know so little about sound design. Um, I only took like one class in college. Fortunately, the guy who did our on, uh, our on set mixing was our, uh, was our sound editor and, and, uh, sound designer. He was fantastic. Uh, he did a lot of great work on it. And then, uh, as far as getting in and recording the music, 
it was such an interesting process because so I I'm myself a musician right but I am I am maybe a step above passable I'm not an expert I can't sit down and you know do I couldn't play any of the music that I wrote okay uh, we'll put it that way and uh, fortunately we had this guy he was amazing we met him when we were looking for extras for the movie because uh, we were looking for a lot of people who could fake playing an instrument because there's a lot of times in the movie where the musicians are actually on screen and this guy uh he sends us a picture of himself sitting with like 30 or 40 different horns around him like you know trumpets and trombones and all this stuff and we're like please come to set and bring all of those and he would show up and he would uh he would teach extras how to believably play the trumpet or believably play, you know, the saxophone or something. And when, but he himself was a extremely talented trumpet player. So when it came time to record the album, I got a hold of him. I said, Hey, uh, do you happen to know any other musicians? He goes, Oh, do I? And he provided literally the entire band. Of course though, problems come up as they always do. So problem number one is we have, our band lined up. We have recording session lined up. We're going to, you know, knock out as much of the soundtrack we can day one and then reassess. And, uh, at like nine o'clock the night before, and we're starting recording at like 7am, he calls me and goes, Hey, our piano player has to back out. She has the flu. And I'm like, great. Now I have to get a new piano player who can sight read pretty complex jazz music in less than 12 hours. And I'm calling everyone I know. I know a lot of musicians, but like most of them are really far away where I couldn't get them up there in a day. Uh, and I'm calling everybody. And I finally end up, I find out, I talk to my landlord and my next door neighbor is a like virtuoso piano player who is like, yeah, sure. I'll come up tomorrow. I'll, uh, I'll knock it all out. And they were excellent. We, the first day was amazing. We had some other issues. Like uh, we had our drummer one day had to, he had a, like an emergency had to leave. So we had to record a couple songs without our drummer and then comp those in later, which was a nightmare and something I would never do again. Now that I'm aware of like the complication of that. But honestly, the biggest thing with recording the music that was difficult is like, I can listen to a musician and go, yep, that's right. Or that's not right. I can't listen to a dozen musicians and be like, Oh, that needs to change on, you know, bar 47. Cause I'm not that good. Right. And knowing that limitation now, like, the next time I do this, I'm, I'm going to have someone who's there to supervise the music and, you know, kind of conduct the whole thing because it was difficult to answer questions on, you know, an instrument I might not even play like, Oh, Hey, on the tuba, should I be playing this? Whatever sounds best to you. Cause I couldn't tell you the answer to that, you know, but, uh, but it all came together really well. And then I had a guy out of Texas who, who mixed the whole soundtrack for me. Um, he's awesome. He, he does all the audio for the San Antonio Spurs. Um, and he loves it, but he likes to do more creative work at times. So he got to do, you know, a soundtrack for a musical, uh, for a jazz musical. And he, he absolutely loved it and, uh, and did a, a phenomenal job mixing it. But it was, it was interesting. I mean, it was one of those things, it was one of the few things where the limitations that money and time put on it, I wish I hadn't had. It was the only time where I feel like all those limitations didn't turn out a cool, more creative project. It was like, man, I wish I'd had, you know, two more days to record the soundtrack. I wish it had, you know, this much time to do this. I wish I had been able to bring in, you know, this person or that person, but, but you work with what you got and, you know, it's done. I'm really happy with it. You know, I never thought I'd have a soundtrack on Spotify. So 
I think it, um, I think that's a, you know certainly a, a very cool thing. And in, in that, were there also moments that you know when you wrote the when you, when you wrote the movie, that's one thing because you know in your mind your mind's eye that man this is going to be great on screen, and then you saw it on screen, and then you saw it in the editing room, and it all kind of worked. Were there any of those moments that you said? Man, just as I envisioned, or better than I envisioned. Absolutely, there there were. I mean, this isn't quite to answer your question, but it, the idea, the moment just popped in my head. There was this moment that was so cool when I showed up at the recording studio day one, and you know I've written all this music right with with my composer, and I've heard the MIDI tracks a million times, and I know this stuff back and forth. And then I walk in, and the trombone player is practicing the solo that's at the beginning of the song, the beginning of the movie, and I was just like, it was just the coolest moment ever to have like someone playing music that I wrote. Um, just, just, I, I could not have been happier, but yeah, there were definitely moments of that where we'd watch a scene. I'd watch a scene as I'm cutting it and I'd be like, man, this is like, this is what I thought it would be. You know, I, I'm especially the musical numbers because, you know, I had like an idea in my head of how I wanted it to look, but at the same time, like I'm not a choreographer. So like my choreographer took those songs and ran with them and, you know, choreographed them and put it together and they were excellent. Um, but they were so much more fleshed out than what I ever could have like had in my head, right? And then seeing it on screen, and once once you've got the edit in there, and and the cuts work just as you're imagining, it was it was magical. I mean, it's it's the coolest experience ever to see something. I mean, our job is to create things that don't exist and make them exist. So getting to see that is the coolest thing ever. It's not the worst thing in the world, and and it must no. be it must be doubly. Um, uh, you know, just inspiring to say, to see that, okay, you wrote the story, but now you have music that you wrote that people are actually playing. I can't imagine what that, that's all like together. It's uh, yeah, definitely it's something that probably just, you know, blows your mind. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, when, cool. when uh, you, you finally said, man, we got picture lock, everything looks good. I, I think we're ready to, to, to go with distribution. Tell me how that, that process uh, went. That, that seems to be the, the big hurdle that a lot of people have to go through to actually get people to watch their movie or see their movie, if not through festivals. Absolutely. Well, yeah. So we want, you know, we obviously submitted to festivals, right. And, and there was a, there was a mix of festivals that we actually thought we could get into and festivals that, you know, our ambition, uh, <laughs> caused us to waste some money on. Right. Um, but, uh, honestly, a lot of that was back before we had trimmed the movie down. Right. And, uh, festivals don't like, two and a half hour long movies that they can't program. Right. Um, and yeah, I'm also aware, you know, it's got, it's, it's got its issues here or there, right. That may, may, might not make it the most, you know, successful film in human history. But when it came to be, it, you know, the fall starts rolling around and we're like, well, why don't we, why don't we try and get it into some theaters? Like it can't be that hard to get it into a few smaller theaters. You know, we, we had a few connections here or there. Uh, there was a, a theater down in Fort Wayne near where I went to college that screens independent films. We're like, it, it what what'll happen if we just start contacting some theaters? So Chase and I make a list of, uh, we start off, we're like, well, let's find theaters that we either have a personal connection with or theaters that, uh, that have a connection to the movie. So like there's, there's literally a movie theater. There's two movie theaters that we filmed in, in the movie. So we're like, well, those are locks, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be interested. Uh, or, or a, a movie theater in a city where like, one of the you know main cast members is from, and we think, oh man, we can get a lot of people to show up to a screening here, right? And so we start contacting these theaters and going, hey, we have this movie. Um, 
it's you know it's it's an independent musical uh this is why we think it'd be great in your theater would you be interested in programming it for one weekend on march 13th uh we picked that week because there were no big movies coming out it was going to be perfect um and we started getting like a tremendously positive response we'd have people go like yeah we'd love to have your movie here um you know give us the details like how are we going to do this and so we just started taking that momentum and running. So we, we started going, okay, well, we got these theaters. Well, why don't we try this theater where it was like, maybe we could get it. Like, for instance, Chicago, a lot of all our dancers and our choreographer and our lead actor were all from Chicago, but it's also Chicago. It's not a 50,000, you know, it's not a town of 50,000 people. It's the third biggest city in America. But once we had 10 movie theaters on board and we can email a theater and say, hey, we've got you know, we've got 10 theaters across America that are interested in this. Would you like to, you know, be theater 11? It starts to expand. And then once you've got a theater in Chicago, then you can go to the theater in Detroit and be like, hey, Chicago's showing it. Do you also want to show it here in Detroit? You know, and have another big city release. By the time all was said and done, we had 24 theaters on board, uh, including New York, LA, Chicago, Detroit, um, you know, all across the country, uh, all, all but like one or two opening on opening weekend on March 13th. Uh, which was just the craziest thing in the world. Never, never would have believed that could happen because we're not a company. You know, it's not like we're it's not like we're a distribution company. And the biggest name we had in it was Adam Conover does some off screen narration for about 20 seconds in the movie. <laughs> Although you better believe we put his name on as much stuff as we possibly could for his 20 seconds of involvement. That's, that's um, amazing. Did yeah. Um, did, what was the process and uh, what was their quote unquote their take? Did they charge you a fee to show your movie or how? So does, that's how does what's that amazing. Work? Yeah, of course. No, I, I mean, uh, any anything I can share with people, I would love to. I honestly thought it was going to be like that because I knew friends who had who had screened at like one theater before. And it was always, you know, you they paid the theater and then hope they sold enough tickets to make their money back. Right. Um, with the exception of of Los Angeles, which is a city that is extremely hard to screen in because screening there qualifies you for the Oscars, so everyone wants to screen there, right? Uh, we did pay to, to screen in that theater with the, with the hope that we'd sell enough tickets to make our money back, but most places what we'd do is we would do a 50-50 ticket split. So we paid nothing up front, they paid nothing up front, uh, they didn't you know, like pay for marketing, we gave them a poster, they put it up, and then uh, if we sold one ticket for $10, they got $5, we got $5. If we sold 100 tickets... Then they got half that. We got half that. A couple places would have like a minimum. They'd say you have to sell at least you know a hundred dollars for the tickets. Otherwise, you owe us money. After that, you know we're good. Uh, but yeah, everyone was just really excited to have an indie movie. And uh, even chains like we had this. There's this theater chain in Michigan called Celebration Cinema, and they have I think thirty theaters across the state. And and they're they're a bigger chain as far as like the theaters themselves are relatively big. You know, they're like fifteen screen auditoriums. And I got a hold of. It was like one of the last places we contacted because I was like, oh, that's never going to work. They're a big chain. They're, they'll never accept it. And I got a hold of their Kalamazoo location, which is where most of the movie was filmed. And I was like, hey, we got this movie. Would you be interested in doing one night only? And they said, well, absolutely. Would you want to screen it in more theaters? Because we'd love to have it in Grand Rapids and St. Joseph, Michigan. And I was like, wait, what? And so next thing I know, we're in three theaters in their chain instead of just one. Um, so yeah, the response was incredible. And and like I said, what was amazing was that we weren't, like you asked, we weren't putting up a bunch of money because that's oftentimes the the limitation for an indie movie. You know, they don't save any money for marketing because they either don't realize or they just don't have it. And then it comes around and it's time to put your movie out in theaters and you're like, oh, I'd love to, but 
I don't have an extra, you know, 10 grand to pay all these theaters to screen it. And I'm probably not going to make my money back. So what are we going to do? And we were really fortunate to have the situation where all these theaters believed in us enough to, you know, give us time in their theater. I think having one under your belt, like you said, it built momentum just to even have one, then to five, then to 10, then, then more uh, up to 23, 23 theaters. I think yeah. it's almost the same thing like, hey, get one movie under your belt, which you have. Congrats on that. And then next Thank thing you. you know, you've made it, you, know, you make more and oh yeah, remember we made that movie. We're the makers of that. I think it, it gives you that, that, um, that cred, so to speak, to, to, to be invited Absolutely. to the next party. How did, yeah. how did you then go on with uh, VOD um, uh, distribution? How did that work for you? Yeah, so that's, um, Chase was the one who headed that up a lot and it was an interesting situation. So uh, I, I referenced the date the movie came out because it's an important date. So March 13th was supposed to be this perfect, Friday the 13th, right? Uh, no movies coming out, no, no major releases. Uh, it was actually funny, like one week before this movie called The Hunt that had been uh, pulled from theaters the year before for like some censorship issues got a release date the same day. We're like, dang it. But fortunately, the audience for a very gory adventure horror movie was not the same as for our family-friendly musical. But uh, March 13th is the day that the national state of emergency was declared in America for the coronavirus. So we went from uh, the day before our release, we had we had like pre-release parties in Cincinnati and at my old college. Cincinnati got canceled. Uh, with we had like 350 pre-sale tickets canceled. Had to refund all those tickets. Couldn't have the event. The Huntington University one had 12 people come out because they were told, please don't go. Like, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't go. And we should have canceled, but we didn't think they were going... We didn't think that it was going to be that bad at the time, and so we kept going with it, and it was that bad. Uh, and so what turned out from supposed to be 23 theaters across America, most canceled... Uh, a few stayed open and with the exception of St. Joe, Michigan, which sold out, um, we pretty much had like very low attendance because no one, no one was comfortable going out or theaters were saying we can only sell, you know, we have to keep this many seats between people, um, which in like one theater we had, it only seated 30 people. So when you suddenly can't sell ever, you can only sell every third seat, you know, great. 10 people can come. Right. So, um, it ended up not being a very, we ended up opening, uh, uh, it was like, Ooh, I think 60th in the country, which is terrible. Although here's the hilarious thing. The numbers that we post for a box office normally would have been so tremendously bad, but because of how bad everyone's, uh, week was, we actually did pretty good. Cause like the number one movie in America that week was Pixar's onward. And it only made $10 million in the theaters. That's how bad that week was in box. In fact, the next week, this movie called Phoenix, Oregon, which only opened in Oregon was the number one movie in America with like $6,800 in sales. So that's how weird the, the couple weeks were, but we realized we were like, man, we're not in theaters anymore. And we have this movie and we want to do something with it. And the plan had always been Amazon, but we thought we'll do Amazon in like the fall after we've had a nice theatrical release, we might even try and like hit some drive-ins when summer comes. Uh, and instead we're like, well, we're dead in the water with this movie. Um, and, Chase gets a hold of Amazon and he has some contacts there with their licensing and distribution. And uh, I can't remember the exact timeline, but I know it was sometime in April when we had the movie live, which was, which is tremendously fast. Normally it takes, you know, months and months to get your movie on demand there because uh, you know, they have tons and tons of movies that are being 
put on and asked to, you know, to be put as on-demand films. So getting it on there really quick was great because we captured this audience of people that were like, man, I really wanted to see it in theaters and I didn't get a chance to, oh, but now it's on Amazon and I'm stuck at home because of the quarantine. So sure, I'll watch it. Um, and fortunately our response has been really, really good on Amazon so far. And, uh, later this, I think it's going to be later this summer, if not early fall, we're going to be on Tubi as well. So, um, the response has been great on demand, which and has been And really, not to really mention high ratings, because I know a lot of people who don't know anything about your movie will just look at the ratings alone. And, uh, you know, that does definitely have an influence, right? Um, yeah, it's been great because we honestly thought, you know, we'll convince five or six of our friends to, you know, rate it. But we have tons of ratings from people I have no idea who they are who, you know, rate it and love it. Um, we did have one great one. I just recently got a review and I was like, this sounds wrong. This doesn't sound like my movie. I start reading it. And after about two sentences, realized that they were reviewing the movie Moonlight, yeah. but accidentally clicked on my movie. So that was fun. But, but yeah, for the most part, it's been a great, great response. And it's been really, really encouraging. Well, where do you go from here? Um, I, I, you know, I, you, you, you kind of have to not stop. I don't think you're done with your career, but uh, do you have anything <laughs> else on the, on the uh, launch pad? Absolutely. So today is actually kind of a funny day to be doing the podcast because today was supposed to be day one of principal on my next film that's been pushed a year because of the coronavirus. So um, I'm supposed to be in New Orleans right now filming uh, filming another movie, but uh, that'll be we're going to be doing that next spring now um, just because of everything that's, you know, happening a lot of, you know, a lot of difficulty in having a film production going on right now but uh, that's the next big project uh coming down the pike uh been working on distribution on uh, a documentary i did a couple years ago um about turkey the country of turkey um i followed an archaeologist uh who does work there and uh we actually just uh just made a deal to distribute through chase's company so that's going to be up on amazon and uh other streaming services come early fall so um, looking forward to, you know, seeing how that is received, um, beyond, we had a very small release, uh, in theaters back last fall, um, but haven't had any traction on getting it to a distributor since then. So it's going to be exciting to have it in front of a wider audience and see, you know, how it's received and how, uh, how people like it. Well, Turkey certainly a crossroads. And, um, uh, there was a short film, which is, is I knew I, it skipped my brain right now about, uh, an Italian filmmaker who had just done this, uh, amazingly cut uh, a film on Turkey and life there. That was, uh, that was really cool to see with just oh, nice. uh, hyperlapse and everything else. Oh, uh, Watchtowers of Turkey. Is yes, it that one? Yes. Yes. It's one of my favorite short films. It's just, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Crazy. Uh, and what he did that on was a GH4 and yep. GH3 and just, uh, just some very simple tools, but that just shows you how I think editing is what made that film the film. Oh, 100%. Yeah, that that thing was incredible. I remember watching it because it came out right before I was leaving to go film this documentary. And I was like, oh, well, there's my benchmark. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite a benchmark. I think it's got a few few million views. Exactly. Uh, So I, I, you know, we'd like to ask people what what they they thought or, you know, the lessons they learned from making their first film or. And there's a million of them, right? But was there an overreaching thing that maybe making your next film uh, you can draw upon uh, by doing this first film? Yeah, the, I think the biggest thing that I realized really quickly was that 
if you're if you're directing the movie, especially, and or or in a situation where like you're one of the producers and you're you've written the thing, everyone's kind of looking to you to answer every question, right? And I I I come from you know the, the typical Midwest background of of uh you know keep your nose down and do your hard work and don't ever like don't ever promote yourself. So it's hard to then be in a position where you where everyone is looking to you and they're like, hey tell me how to do this thing. Uh, and I learned very quickly on my last movie that like, if you don't have, I mean, I obviously had a vision for the thing, but if you're not like accurately, uh, speaking that out to the people around you and explaining exactly what you want and telling them, this is what I want. I don't like that. I like that. Then at the end of the day, you're only going to have yourself to blame if there's something you don't like, because those people did the best job they could with the information they had. Right. Um, it's up to you as the director to give them the direction that they need. And, uh, I definitely struggled with that on this film as opposed as, and I hope you know not to on the next one of, of being almost like nervous to share my opinion, despite the fact that that's my whole job is to be there sharing my opinion and guiding this whole production and, uh, you know, being kind of the, the overarching vision for everything, right? I'm not, I'm not as good as any of these people. I'm not as good a cinematographer as Greg. I'm not as good a production designer as Jordan. You know, I'm not as good at any of these jobs, but I know what I want and it's my job to make sure that they know what I want so they can give it to me. And, uh, there was definitely some hesitation being, you know, being young, it being my first, you know, big major thing, you know, before that, the biggest thing I had done was a nine day movie with literally 10 people between the cast and crew that, you know, it was nothing. Um, it, you know, we never even finished it. Right. So I had no like confidence that I know what I'm doing. I can run a 30 day production and everyone will turn to me. I mean, you know, when your cinematographer is twice as old as you and has done 80 movies, you're like, well, maybe I don't know what I'm doing, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you can do his job. It matters if you can do your job and being able to do your job. Well, means everyone else can do their job to the best of their ability. So that that's something that I've definitely noticed now having worked on some other films uh, that new directors struggle with is realizing that like everyone expects you to have an opinion on everything and to share your opinion and tell everyone how you want things to go in a, you know, in a polite collaborative way. But like, if you're not sharing your opinion, then there's not even a point for you to be there. Like they can just do their job, just hand them the script and say, have fun. Right. Um, it's your job to, to focus all these experts in their particular field. And you're managing different personalities, different departments. And at the end of the day, you have to be the leader that, that gets them to that vision. Absolutely. So, so where can, first of all, where can we find you, uh, or where can our, uh, the listeners find you and, uh, you know, to, to direct their ne next great film? Um, <laughs> yeah. Where's the best place? Uh, two places. So I'm on, uh, I'm on, Instagram, just Cooper Flanagan on Instagram. You can find me. I don't, I don't promote a lot of my work. That's more where I do my, uh, my photography. I kind of do that as a side hobby. It's a, it's fun cause it's creative, but there's no, there's no pressure. Cause I don't, I don't like, it's not my job. It's just for fun. Right. Uh, and then, uh, you can find me on my website, uh, which is squatchfilm.com. Um, and that's got links to all my previous work and some news about upcoming projects. Um, you know, the rest of our team at the, at the company and just a good way to get a hold of me if you're, if you're looking to collaborate. So, uh, Hey Cooper, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate the time and, uh, I look forward to doing this again. Absolutely. It'd be great. 
one more thing I want to mention before we go is that there's a couple connections from our past guests uh, to this project. And you may have heard one of the names. It was uh, Chase Crawford, who was, of course, our guest on episode 18. He was one of the producers uh, for Moondance. And one of our panelists from the Cleveland Film Crew Roundtable, Mr. Thomas Mathias, he was the uh, Steadicam operator on the uh, film. So, small world, huh? Um, well, that's our show for today. I'd like to thank Cooper for joining us and sharing his experience on creating this really fun musical. You can catch Moondance on Prime Video, so definitely check it out. Make it a movie night this weekend. Have some family or friends over. A um, lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform and leave a comment and review. Follow us on Red Bicycle Media on social and we will catch you next time.